Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Norton with an opening lecture on Shakespeare's Henry VIII. The play begins with a prologue that I think this prologue has some, some resonances of um, the prologue or the chorus that begins Henry V, as well as the prologue, a character called Rumor, that begins the second part of Henry IV. Um, Rumor, this character that begins the second part of Henry IV, speaks in first person about how rumor works, how rumor stirs up lies and creates confusion all across the land, how rumors are taken as truth and therefore great damage is done. The opening with the chorus of, of Henry V starts with the chorus who says these interesting lines uh, and went away apologizing, right? Apologizing for the stage? Question mark. The prologue says, Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, there's the apology. Gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that hath dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. So the chorus, that's Henry V, the chorus apologizes for the flat, simple stage. And then that same chorus in Henry V asks the audience to imagine, right? You must use your imagination in order to enter in to the full beauty and glory and majesty that will be portrayed on this stage about the most amazing king, one of the greatest kings of all English history, will be characterized and, and, and illustrated for you here on this stage. You have to use your imagination to enter into its fullness. Well, here, at the beginning of Henry VIII, we see a very similar start. A very similar, I don't know if it's an apology, but it's definitely uh, a ploy. It's definitely a strategy to set the audience in the right posture. I come no more to make you laugh. Now, some scholars say that this, this play probably followed after a comedy. That seems less likely to me. Um, I think uh, many of the plays that were performed in, in the Globe and, and in Shakespeare's day, um, obviously a lot of them were comedies, but the prologue, this, these folks have no idea um, what, what exactly these, these, these viewers have seen. This is, again, most likely first performed, this play first performed in 1613. Um, so in some ways, it may be looking back on the tetralogies, um, the history plays about Henry and characters that did make us laugh, like Falstaff and Points and others who were, were, were great um, great jokesters and great men of wit. Even Henry V himself was a great man of wit. And that play ends on a very high note, a marriage, lots of laughter and jollity and so forth. Well, this play, Henry VIII, is going to involve none of that. <laughs> this play is not going to have laughter. This play is going to be very serious, as it says, things now that bear a weighty and a serious brow, sad, high and working, full of state and woe, such noble scenes as draw the eye to flow, that's to cry, right? We now present. And then there's this interesting statement. Those that can pity, here may, 
If they think it well, let fall a tear. The subject will deserve it. So in some ways, it's saying those in the audience who are of the right state of mind, they will pity the, these actions. The, this play is not meant to, to mock Henry VIII or Cardinal Wolsey or Catherine or Anne Boleyn or any of the people on the stage, any, any of the historical figures presented here. They're not meant to be mocked or laughed at. And they're in, in, at, at its best, this play is meant to be to draw the eye to flow the characters to be pitied, and so forth. It is interesting here at the beginning, he does say, um, if you've come to hear a merry body play, a, a play about sexual topics and funny body things, a noise of targets, or to see a fellow in a long motley coat, that's a clown, guarded with yellow, you will be deceived. Right? This is not for you. Gentle hearers, know this, says the prologue. To rank our chosen truth with such a show as fool and fight is, beside forfeiting our own brains, if we're going to add humor and clowns and ridiculous jokes to this, we, we would do a great disservice to our own brains, right? And the opinion that we bring to make that only true we now intend. So we, 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 we hope, the prologue says, we hope, and perhaps this is Shakespeare's um, sentiments. We hope to present these things as close to the truth as we can, and which will leave, lead to understanding, which will lead to clear perspectives. Uh, Shakespeare presents this play, and its source comes from the history uh, by a guy named Raphael Hollinshed in his text, Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And clearly, Shakespeare loved this Raphael Hollinshed text as many of his history plays find their roots in, in, this, in this text by Raphael Hollinshed. Another text that it seems that Shakespeare drew upon was a religious book by a guy named John Fox called The Book of Martyrs. I mentioned before, this is this place first performed in, in either 1612 or 1613. We, we don't know. Its original title, we believe, was called All is True. Of course, now we call it Henry VIII. So uh, the play begins in, in this light, uh, in, in a way that sets up the audience for something different, something that we, they hadn't seen in the history plays. William Shakespeare's Henry VIII opens with a conversation between the Duke of Norfolk and the Duke of Buckingham. The Duke of Norfolk relates the details of his experience in Calais, where Henry VIII, that Calais, remember that's a, one of the northern points of, of, of France, um, one of the closest points between France and England, and a much disputed area that England really had early rights to, or ancient rights, you might say, to that land. Uh, they fought over Calais uh, in the Hundred Years' War, um, yeah, and, and, and so forth. So anyway, that's where the Duke of Norfolk is talking about. He's talking about a conversation, a, a details of the experience in Calais where Henry VIII and Francis the One, Francis One, a king of France, met for a royal event called the Field of Cloth of Gold. And this event is, is actually documented in Raphael Hollinshed's book. And uh, a place, according to Hollinshed, it took place in the Val d'Or, a, a shallow valley on English soil in Calais, halfway between 
Gisness and Ard. Um, apparently luxurious banquets, dances, a feat of arms, and engagements between the two kings and their queens were orchestrated by Cardinal Wolsey. Uh, the royal accommodations were noted as being especially magnificent. Uh, historian Jocelyn G. Russell records that the French pitched more than 300 tents on this, on this uh, field of cloth of gold, all of them covered with velvet and cloth of gold, emblazoned with the arms of their owners and surmounted by pennants or golden apples. Pretty cool. Uh, Russell also documents that King Francis's tent was taller than the others and was supported by two ship's masts lashed together. Imagine that. Two giant ship's masts that hold up his tent. They were covered with cloth of gold and topped by a life-size statue of St. Michael. The description continues by, uh, by Russell. She says, she writes, an eyewitness described the French tents as more magnificent, more magnificent than the miracles of the Egyptian pyramids and the Roman amphitheaters. However, many people were more impressed by the temporary palace erected by Henry VIII near Giznes. This had walls of timber painted to look like brick and many large windows. Even Leonardo, an Italian, commented, could not have done better, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Shakespeare opens his play with the Duke of Norf Norfolk exhilarated, where they buy this experience in Callis, right? This, this was unbelievable to him. And Norfolk says, "'Twixt Guinness and Ard, I was then present, saw them salute on horseback, beheld them when they lighted, how they clung in their embracement as they grew together. Which had they, what four-throned ones could have weighed such a compounded one? Now, there's, there's probably a bit of a joke in there. Henry VIII was known as being pretty stout, pretty, pretty thick, um, fat, if you will, as was the king of France, Francis I. And so we're talking about what four men could have outweighed those two <laughs> as they embraced. But anyway, um, though his presence at the event is documented by historians, Shakespeare's Buckingham reports to having been sick with a fever when King Henry and King Francis meet in the valley. So that's an interesting thing that Shakespeare changed. Um, whether or not Buckingham's bitterness over the event causes him to break out in fever can't be determined, but there is definitely some bitterness among these nobles. Something that's different here. So we noticed in, or you, you probably noticed in the Henriad, uh, all the plays about King Henry, um, those are also called the Tetralogy. There's the first Tetralogy and the second Tetralogy. The one that we read from is the second Tetralogy that has uh, Henry IV, Part One and Two, and Henry V. Um, in each of those plays, you see the kings relating closely with their nobles. The nobles are key advisors. The nobles are the ones you go to for funds, to go to war, and so forth. We've talked about this in class. Well, in this play, it opens up with Cardinal Wolsey. Notice, that is not a nobleman. Uh, Wolsey is not a nobleman. He is, he is a churchman, um, but he is very, very powerful. Um, these, these nobles show some bitterness um, over the event because it is Wolsey who has orchestrated all this. And it is Wolsey who is really, or who has become the king's right-hand man, if you will. Uh, in this opening exchange, Norfolk, despite his 
despite Buckingham's disturbance, continues with much excitement and explains that the event grew in grandeur with each passing day. Um, it's pretty fun, actually. The way Norfolk is, Norfolk is so excited about this. The field of cloth of gold, uh, though marketed by Cardinal Wolsey, it's an important political engagement between England and France. It did not result in the establishment of any lasting treaties between the countries. According to Jocelyn Russell, listen to her again, the event actually became a household word among both nations, standing for any superlative luxury or splendor with no need for justification or thought of cost. It is further reported that the engagement actually concluded poorly between the two kings. Raphael Hollenshed stated that during the event, there was such a hideous storm of wind and weather that many conjecture, conjecture it did prognosticate trouble and hatred shortly after to follow between princes. It's kind of interesting. Russell further documents that no sooner was the meeting between Henry VIII and Francis I over than Francis began to fortify this city called Ardress. And with the very wood from the pavilions, the field of cloth of gold takes place at the height of Cardinal Wolsey's power and authority. By choosing to open his, open his play with a discussion of the event, Shakespeare focuses our attention and the attention of his audience on Wolsey's lust for fame. So it's interesting here. So right after Norfolk seeks, uh, like ends and stops praising the royal engagement, um, Shakespeare reveals the source of Buckingham's bitterness. Buckingham is definitely bitter, as are the other nobles. Buckingham is aware of this kind of superfluous nature of the field of gold, of cloth and gold. Uh, he and many of the other English nobles are enraged uh, when, when Wolsey, in a way, usurps their authority as a royal council and demands that they pay for this elaborate festival. So Buckingham is ticked that he's not at, at the king's right hand, but he's also mad that he's got to pay for this idea that Wolsey had. Buckingham uh, says this, no man's pie is freed from his, that's Wolsey's, ambitious finger. Hollinshed, uh, the historian that, that is the source, part of the source for this play, he records that it was the Duke of Buckingham who raised the loudest complaint to this event. It is on this report that Shakespeare builds his character, which is kind of interesting. Um, he writes, uh, this comes from the source, but namely the Duke of Buckingham, being a man of lofty courage, but not most liberal, sore repined that he should be at so great charges for his furniture forth at this time, saying that he knew not for what cause so much money should be spent about the sight of a vain talk to be had and communication to be ministered of things of no importance. Wherefore, he sticked not to say that it was an intolerable matter to obey such a vile and importunate person as the Cardinal. That's uh, from Raphael Hollenshed. Buckingham's bitterness at the beginning of Shakespeare's Henry VIII finds its focus in Cardinal Wolsey. So instead of calling a remembrance of a meeting of nobles richly clad and engaged in friendly games, the field of cloth and gold could only have reminded Shakespeare's audience of the pride and vanity that characterized the work of Cardinal Wolsey. This is the association that Shakespeare really wants to, to draw us into see and to, to hold. 
Though the play bears the name of the king, the focus of this play never travels far from the pride of Wolsey. Shakespeare's Henry VIII is more a story about the king's chief advisors than a story about the king himself, which is kind of interesting. Cardinal Wolsey in particular is a character that Shakespeare displays as arrogant and dangerously manipulative. It is the cardinal's story that dominates more than two-thirds of the play's action. Uh, critic E. Perlman writes, unlike the greater history plays, in each of which the monarch is the principal figure, King Henry VIII, the play, does not center on the king himself. The character of King Henry is less well-defined and less interesting in the play than either Buckingham, Catherine, the queen, or Wolsey. In, in the play, Shakespeare seems not so interested in the reign of a king as in the fall of a priest. And that's a, that's a big deal. So keep an eye out for that as you're reading the rest of this play. He seems more interested in the fall of this priest, Cardinal Wolsey. It, it does not seem far-fetched that John Fletcher, um, the playwright that many believe Shakespeare collaborated with in writing this play, that he could have had some influence over the way in which the cardinal is portrayed within the play. Uh, Fletcher's father, uh, the one-time Bishop of London, infamously lost his post for marrying a widow, supposedly known for her ill repute. So it may be that Fletcher has a bit of a, a bone to pick with the church. We don't know. That's a bit of a biographical uh, fallacy, if you will. Um, but you never know. In Henry VIII, Shakespeare moves beyond the medieval de Cassibus tradition to present a desperate and controversial view of humanity. While true to the medieval form in its description of a sudden fall from power and in its presentation of worldly power as fleeting and vain, Henry VIII finds Shakespeare experimenting with a religious concept newly introduced to the church by Protestant reformers. It is the, the concept of the total depravity of man that shook the foundations of European spirituality forcing men and women to adopt a new understanding of themselves and the God they served. In Henry VIII, Shakespeare wrestles with the concept of humiliation as an agent of change in the life of Cardinal Wolsey. This concept, uh, I argue, is, is drawn from the religious debates of the 16th and 17th centuries between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Of these debates and the religious culture in which Shakespeare lived, Deborah Sugar writes, She's a literary critic. If it is not plausible to read Shakespeare's plays as Christian allegories, neither is it likely that the popular drama of a religiously saturated culture could, by a secular miracle, have extricated itself from the theocentric orientation informing the discourses of politics, gender, social order, and history. And this is a, a great quote. Um, basically, uh, Deborah Sugar argues that we, we have to assume that Shakespeare's plays are going to be full of, of, of theology, full of, of, of the drama of, of its time, for instance, and particularly of Shakespeare's day, there was major tension between Protestants and Roman Catholics and their theological differences. And that's what we see kind of worked out in this play in a way. Stephen Greenblatt, another great literary critic, he weighs in on the debate surrounding Shakespeare's theological interest by claiming that the Protestant Reformation offered Shakespeare an extraordinary gift 
the broken fragments of what had been a rich, complex edifice. And he knew exactly how to accept and use this gift. So this is the opening of the play. I'm going to leave it here at that. Be looking for the ways in which Wolsey becomes the center of things.